The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. Lord, help us in this next hour uh, to be um, attentive and to be wise and clear. God, I pray that this material would be helpful and that you would be glorified. God, for those of us, and I know, uh, Lord, we've talked a lot about this over the last two days. There's a lot of folks in the room, Lord, who are dealing with some really heavy situations and people that they love dearly. And God, I pray that you would uh, grant them comfort. You'd fill them with your spirit. Give them the right words to say your words. And would you protect the innocent, Lord? And would you uh, shine a spotlight upon the guilty uh, in such a way that it would draw them to repentance? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, control. One of the key questions that I get as I do this work, and some of you have been asking this question, is, well, Chris, what's abuse? Like, when does it cross the line? And it, it's interesting to me that uh, we, get, we do kind of get stuck on this question. It's like we're looking for this um, really clear red line, right? But the red line in abuse is a lot more like the red line in politics. It seems to be moving every day, and there doesn't seem to be consequences to it. And one of the things that I found, um, we might call it peculiar, but it's an interesting side effect, is that some of us as pastors and biblical counselors, when we're looking for the fictitious red line, we fail to realize that we're still dealing with sin. And one thing I get, well, is it illegal? Is what he's doing illegal, Chris? And I'm like, well, are you a law enforcement officer? I don't mean it in a negative way, but sometimes in this topic, we get drawn into being a private investigator, and that's not our job. We should be playing in our, to our strengths, which is the scriptures, right? We know better than law enforcement about righteousness and sin. So uh, we can really get hung up on the is it illegal, is it legal discussion. So uh, what I hope to do today, what I, what I would love to do, is just to give you a little bit more uh, ammo in a, in a very nonviolent way. That's a horrible analogy. I'd like to give you more weapons in the fight against violence. Uh, I'd like to give you more resources to, um, to help us in the counseling process. Uh, the way I think about it is... Um, in these type of cases, it reminds me a few years ago, I was in Indiana. I was teaching in beautiful Lafayette, Indiana in February. And uh, yeah, I know. And we had decided, my wife and I decided to tri- take a trip out to what they call at the church Bethany Farms. At this point, it wasn't running yet, but it's now a, um, if you're familiar with the church there, they, uh, it's, the, it's the men's version of what Mark Shaw does at Vision of Hope. So Bethany Farms is like a working farm where men who are struggling with addiction can go and so on. And so it hadn't been uh, started yet as an addiction program, but we knew that what what was happening. So my wife and I wanted to go see the farm. So we drive out into the country there, and we uh, see the farm, and we're like, oh, that's really cool, and we're kind of imagining what all is going to happen and everything. And so we uh, head back to the church, and as we're heading back to the church, we, we come over this hill. Well, it wasn't a hill because it's Indiana. Um, this little knoll. <laughs> someone had, yes, it's, someone had left all the corn setting out, I guess, and it molded. I don't know. We came over this little rise. And I saw something that I don't think I'd ever seen before in my life. An entire train moving. I know, aren't you amazed? I was. I grew up in West Virginia. You don't see whole trains moving at the same time because everything's squished together, right? West Virginia is like an accordion. 
Everything's just shoved together. There's rivers, there's bends, there's mountains. You see parts of the train. You see the engine, then you see the boxcars, then you see the rear end, the caboose. You don't see the whole thing at once because there's always an obstruction. The trains run primarily in the river valleys. So you don't see them. We were over this knoll. I'm not even kidding. I was amazed. I looked at my wife and I said, well, there's a whole train. You know, whoa. I could see the front, I could see the end, and I could see it moving. And amazingly enough, that night I was teaching this lecture for the first time. And I came into that classroom and I said, you know what I saw today, guys? A whole train moving. And they had the same reaction you did. So what? <laughs> but it reminded me of the work that we do, the work that I do, and the work that we're calling each other to do. When it comes to cases that may involve abuse and certainly involve control, you are typically never, ever going to see the whole train. You're going to catch glimpses of the train. And what can be scary for us, and I know as I'm talking, maybe you've heard me this weekend so far, and you think, man, Chris, you ask a lot of questions, which I do. You spend a lot of time on this, which I do, because I want to get as much of the train as I can get. But I'm telling you, I've never seen the whole train. John Henderson puts it this way, if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse. These are so distinct and so gnarly and so kooky and so goofy and so upside down from typical biblical counseling, you'll never get the clearest picture possible. And one of the dangers, one of the traps for us as biblical counselors is, uh, is, is this Proverbs 18, um, I don't want to say that Proverbs 18 is bad because Proverbs 18 is beautiful, but this Proverbs 18, 17 trap of uh, if you hear one side of an argument, right, it sounds good until the other side has a chance to, to, that we can spend so much of our time playing private investigator, trying to get every side of the story that we realize that both parties are probably lying to us, and there's probably something else happening than what we're being told, that we can't wait to get every piece of information. Now, before you get upset that Chris is somehow heretically taking Proverbs 18, 17 out of context, just let me remind you that Proverbs 18, 18, says that if you still don't know who's telling the truth, cast lots. I don't think any of us are doing that, are we? Are we going, well, I don't know who's telling the truth, so we roll the dice? <laughs> no, the principle of Proverbs 18, 18 is you may not get all the information and you have to trust God. And in domestic abuse cases, I'm telling you, you are going to have to trust God with a lot of information because you'll never see the whole train. Uh, let me give you an example in this idea of, well, is this abuse or is this not abuse? I was once working with an individual, with a guy, and he had gotten into an argument with his wife. And in that argument, he uh, went and he hid her knickknacks. You call them knickknacks? Little things, yeah. right? Little pretties, right? After the argument, he was to get her back for arguing with him. He went and hid her pretties. They were, uh, I won't give you the specifics, but they were like two pieces that fit together, all right? He would hide one of the pieces, all right? Is that abusive or not abusive? Some say yes. There's someone who loves their knickknacks, all right? That's abusive. I love it. I'll tell by the laughter that we'll take, we'll take both sides. We'll say there's some in the room that think it's abusive, some that think it's not. Because really all we're seeing is part of the train, right? 
He hides knickknacks. Okay. He hides pretties. That's childish. It's immature, but is it abusive? And it's kind of a head scratcher, right? I don't want to label him as something as, you know, I can label him as a knickknack hider. <laughs> but I don't really have biblical precedent to counsel that. Like, thou shalt not hideth your wife's knickknacks. It doesn't happen. But what if I were to tell you that this same man, weeks earlier, had held his wife hostage in the laundry room with a weapon to her neck? Is that act abusive or not abusive? It's abusive. We're all in agreement that a, a weapon that could potentially puncture her arteries in her neck, kill her, is an abusive act. We're seeing a little bit more of the train. What if I told you that those knickknacks, some of them she had collected, but some of them had been given to her by her grandmother? Does that change your impression of the situation? What if I told you that prior to the act of violence that we talked about in the laundry room, he had done the same thing, hid the knickknacks? Abusive or not abusive? We're getting the pattern, aren't we? Somebody's been listening. We're seeing more and more of the train, aren't we? So in a counseling setting, and we've got the, I hid the knickknacks, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And she says, you know what, I was yelling and screaming, it was an argument, I, I, you know, it's fine, he returned them, everything's fine. In a counseling room, we may immediately then move on to the next piece, right? But when more pieces of the train come, and we know about the history, then it begins to fill in a little bit more. That's why it's important. That's why data gathering is not just something that uh, we talk about in introduction, introduction to biblical counseling as something you can, you can do. It, you can do or can't do. It's essential. It's absolutely, and in these cases, it's life or death. And I know I annoy people when I'm gathering data because I will spend time and they'll be like, I know what they're thinking. Is this guy ever gonna counsel me? Or is he just gonna ask me questions, <laughs> right? But that information is important because I want to get more of the picture. So sometimes men will say things like this. They'll say, well, I'm just jealous. Or I just get frustrated. Or I have a short fuse. Or I'm Irish. I said that last hour, too. I still, I still don't get that one. Um, And they'll offer these excuses. And then, you know, we'll have men that we counsel who we look at and we say, well, they're a bully, but I don't know if they're abusive. Do you ever been there? You try desperately to see all of the trains so you can label them appropriately. In that process, is it possible that we've forgotten that we're not there to dish out labels? We're there to offer hope. If we have a bully in front of us, is it still worth our time and energy to counsel them? If I can't give them a legal definition and say, you're a batterer, do I still have a counselee in front of me that needs the hope of the gospel? Yeah. So yes, I, I may not start off with all the labels, but as I'm gathering data and I get more of the train, I may have to go there. There is something powerful to say, you know, buddy, after this several weeks that we've been working, you fit all of these categories and... I'm afraid that, I'm, you know, I hate to tell you this, but you meet every indication that you're a domestic abuser. And it's good to hear that and for him to react to that and see his reaction to that. 
But if you can't get there yet, that doesn't mean your counseling hasn't begun, does it? All right, let's talk a little bit um, about our subject today. For those of you who weren't with us in the pre-conference, uh, in your notes and here on the, the screen, you have the definition that I use. It's the definition that I incorporated in the book. It's slightly different than some of what the culture would give us. The, the culture would tell us that power is the problem. I'm going to contend that, biblically speaking, I don't think power is a problem. I think power is a condition of life. It's part of uh, being alive. And in the marriage relationship, I think it's part of the way God designed things. That's we, we talk about complementarity, that husbands and wives complement each other. Part of that is that God created us bigger, faster, stronger. Part of that is that societally, men, it, it's a man's world. We, we have a little bit more influence in some ways. Whether that's a result of the fall or not, it's still something that we have. And so with great power, Spider-Man, comes great responsibility, right? And that's fine. I think we should be the loudest voice in the room on that. For some reason, um, this is the only topic that I find that conservative evangelicals want mutuality. <laughs> I find so many complementarians that say, yes, we're distinct in roles, we're distinct in function, we're equal in essence, uh, and, and everything's different, and there's something distinct, except when it comes to domestic violence, and then we're all mutual, <laughs> that everything's equal. I'm actually a big proponent that says, you know what, men, we have a lot of power in our hands, so we have a lot of responsibility in our hands, and we're going to be held accountable for that. Women have their own ways of sinning. Women are effective sinners. Amen, women? Yeah. Amen. It just so happens that this one's one that men, we're really, really good at. Because the abuse of power is key to that. Second is that it's manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior. So pride lies at the heart of violence. And then uh, we exercise and maintain control. So some quick review. Uh, those of you who were here yesterday, this is going to be a review for you. I'm sorry, but I want to catch everybody up before I do the exercise today. We are suggesting that pride lies at the heart of violence. Uh, all violent people are prideful, but not all prideful people are violent. You probably know some arrogant folks who are just as friendly as can be. Um, <laughs> they just know how great they are, right? So not all... <laughs> Right? Not all prideful people are violent, but all violent people are prideful. Uh, that is a common denominator as you're working with people who use abuse and people who use coercive control. Brenda Branson and Paula Silva also contributed, wrote this book called Violence Among Us. They say an abusive man is often so preoccupied with himself that he sees himself as misunderstood, not wrong. So common in our counseling as we're trying to get more and more of the train. You're going to hear more and more justifications and excuses and, okay, you just didn't hear me. That's not what I meant to say. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's not who I am. Uh, right? But really, behavior, unfortunately, for the person who's trying to convince us, behavior is a greater indicator of what we're dealing with here and choices that we're making. Uh, you guys know Luke 6. For those of you who were in the training yesterday, you know that this is our rubric that we filter everything through when it comes to domestic violence, that you can't pick uh, you know, good things from briar patches. Uh, well, I guess you can. Blue uh, blackberries, they're delicious. Mm. But otherwise, <laughs> a bad tree, as in essence, doesn't bear good fruit, right? A good tree bears good fruit. And so we're going to be observing fruit to understand the root or the heart. You also know James 4. This is an important part of the process, but to catch everybody up, bring you back to speed, we do what we do because we want what we want. And we're suggesting that we want power and control. 
that I'm selfishly pursuing that through these patterns of behavior. You also uh, saw this yesterday. I'll remind you, I use this exercise quite a bit where I have the guys circle what applies to their situation. Uh, which of these seven attributes do they find in their situation? And as I told some of you yesterday, you may know that uh, after a while with some good Q&A, most of the guys can circle all seven. And then we can have a great discussion on pride. One of the homework assignments I shared with the last hour is I like to follow this up with uh, Stuart Scott's Manifestations of Pride and Humility as a deeper look at you know, the struggle with pride. Because most of the guys come in and, and there's just so much blindness in, uh, in this work that I'll have many guys who kind of carry themselves as that it's really hard to be this humble. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you're as good as I am, it's hard to be humble, right? I'm probably the most humble person I know. You get where I'm going? It's like pride, they're so blind to their own pride that it's imperative on us to kind of reveal that because not only are we missing the whole train, many of them are missing the whole train because they're driving the sucker, right? So many of them are missing it as well. Um, last piece of review, we'll skip old Lundy there. As a reminder, whoops, for those of you who were not with us yesterday, control can manifest itself in a variety of ways. Um, you'll see this in this list of um, intimidation, verbal abuse, etc. A couple of things to highlight, because we are dealing with, we're not suggesting that the person we're dealing with is abusive or not. We're looking for more information. Uh, we're talking mostly about control here today. But uh, look at some of the behaviors, and I'm going to tell you some, some things that are really high on the list uh, of priority or danger. Um, animal abuse is a big one. If, uh, if an individual is willing to abuse an animal, it's a really short step to abuse a person. That's pretty consistent. Uh, suicide and homicide are big on the list. They're very common tactics. I'll kill you. What's more common is I'll kill myself. Um, which what a, That's a wicked way, really, to interact with your spouse, isn't it? Is to threaten them, you know, if you don't do what I want, then I'll harm myself. Um, those, are, those are two of the big ones. Uh, things such as weapons, uh, physical violence that includes strangulation is also a really big indicator of uh, lethality. Let me give you some examples uh, of some of these behaviors. I told you yesterday about the gentleman that I worked with who kept spackle and newspaper in his closet. That's because he frequently punched holes in the wall. And um, he would tell me, well, that's the way I vent my anger. Which really, that's part of the train, right? So he's telling me, that's the way I vent. When I get angry, I punch holes in the wall. And my pushback is something along the lines of, well, what are you communicating when you punch a hole in the wall? What's the next step? Like, if this gets out of hand, buddy, like, if you go down this road, what are you going to hit next? Who are you going to hit next, right? Um, the guy who removes the cell phone battery, that's not as common with smartphones nowadays, but certainly checking the phone is. Checking text messages, checking Facebook, sneaking behind their back, high levels of suspicion. Interestingly enough, of the vast majority of guys that I've worked with who carry out some behavior that's high in suspicion, they're generally hiding something. It's, um, it's just uh, vast in irony. You know, I know she's cheating on me, but as you start to dig and, and peel back the onion, you start to see that maybe he's addicted to pornography or he himself is committing adultery. Um, 
I told you yesterday about the guy who broke 10 to 12 phones. That, that's how he vented his anger. He's going to break cell phones. I can't help it. I see a cell phone, I break it when I'm mad. It turned out it was always her phone that he broke. So it was much more intentional than he let on. So all of this I'm giving you is just simply to illustrate that one incident, one event is probably not going to fill out the chart the way we need it to. So we're going to have to get the data to see is there a pattern behind this and what is the pattern? Are these connected? All right, here's the exercise I wanted to get to. I call, we call this the pyramid of hurtful behavior. It's something I do with the guys and uh, was developed, I believe, by my friend Chris. And I've really appreciated it over the years. Uh, the terms I'm going to give you, they're not steadfast terms. This is just for discussion purposes. So some of the terminology can be different. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that we see the escalatory nature of it and the sinful nature of what we're dealing with. So let's say the top of the pyramid is what we call violence, the narrow part, okay? Let's just say that that represents physically violating acts involving a desire to create pain or fear. We would generally call this physical or sexual assault. Are you with me? Everybody's clear on this. We've got this, right? Symptomology includes things like uh, broken bones, scratches, abrasions, red marks around the neck, uh, bloody noses, bloody lips, um, sexual assault, rape. When I think about this, I think about one criminal complaint uh, that I read. I, Part of my work on the criminal side, on the court side, is I have to read through police narratives and criminal complaints. And so uh, this is a highlighted section from a criminal complaint. This is the officer's narrative. This officer observed gobs of the victim's hair on the floor. I observed torn women's undergarments in the trash can and what I believe to be the victim's blood on the floor. The reason why this stands out to me and the narrative goes on and on, it's quite extensive, is I remember the night I was reading it, I was trying to get paperwork done, and I read through the first paragraph of this narrative just like I was reading the newspaper. I got so accustomed to seeing this type of stuff that I got kind of to the end of that sentence, blood on the floor, and I just had to stop for a second and then... I'm sitting at this, in this dark room at this desk, this real sterile place, and I just start to reflect on what I was reading. Like this is a real person, right? This is a real experience. And this is a real dude that's going to be sitting in front of me in a matter of days. This is violence. True? The next level of the pyramid, we might call that abuse. Now, again, the terms are not necessarily as important as it is to understand the, the dynamics here. This exercise is to help us understand control. But abuse might be direct or indirect actions which produce pain or fear. So unlike the physical violence, which is a direct action, I am intending to cause pain and fear. Abuse might be an action in this regard that, you know, I might mean to cause pain or fear, I might not, but you end up hurt or afraid. Emotional abuse falls in this category, verbal abuse, economic abuse. It reminds me of the man that I worked with who was frustrated with his wife and he would send her text message. He blew up her phone. This is not uncommon. So she's got 50, 60 text messages over and over and over again, right? And the longer it went, the more time 
that went by, the more threatening the messages became. She wasn't responding. He was losing control until he sent this message. Make this stop or you'll be sorry. Followed up by, I'm telling you, I will end you. Now, later when confronted about these messages, he said, it wasn't like I was going to kill her. And our response was, did she know that? Well, of course not. That's the point, isn't it? That's the point of a threat, even an idle threat, is you need the victim to believe it. Now, here's the thing. All violence is abusive, true? But not all abuse is violent. That's where we're struggling some in the biblical counseling. We're getting better at it. We're getting more versed at it. But think about the text message scenario I just told you. Is that bad news? Yes. Is it sinful? Yeah. Does it need to be addressed? Does the Bible have hope? Does it have a solution? Yes, 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 yes. But sometimes we'll get stuck in a rut going, I don't see the whole train. I don't want to make a judgment. I don't see the whole train. Is it abuse? Is it not abuse? It's significant enough. What about this? Control. This would be behavior. This is the third part of the pyramid. This would be behavior that seeks to a desired response, such as, I want you to do what I want or keep others from doing what I don't want. This could be bossy, overbearing, or overprotective. This sounds like everybody at some point in our life, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. You see, all violent behavior is abusive and controlling. And all abusive behavior, although maybe not violent, is controlling. Not all controlling behavior is abusive or violent. But you can certainly see how it crosses over quickly, can't you? Is it sin? Mostly. Maybe. And it's certainly easy to escalate. You see, folks, it's real easy to go up the pyramid, isn't it? Especially if your heart's driven by pride that uses power to gain control. What about the last one? Well, we'll call this alienating or irritating behavior. If you've been married more than 10 minutes, (laughs) hello, your spouse has an alienating or irritating behavior. This is action or inaction that can contribute to distance in the relationship. This could be laziness, habits, eccentricities. This is interesting in the, the topic of domestic violence because I will have counselors call me or pastors call me and say, Chris, she's driving me crazy. I want to be understanding, but I think this woman is crazy. Well, tell me why you think he's crazy. She is obsessed about all the wrong things. It's not like he's hitting her. It's not like he's calling her names. But she will not get off the way he does the dishes or the way he puts them in the dishwasher. And she's she's claiming abuse. This is foolish. It may be foolish. Or perhaps there's more train to be seen. All violence is abusive, controlling, and alienating. True? All abuse is controlling and alienating, but not all alienating behavior is controlling, abusive, or violent. Let me try to illustrate that. So I was working with a man who his wife had this, uh, this irritating, this thing that irritated her. If he left a cabinet door open, she got really irritated. It was like, just close a ding-dang cabinet, right? Can't you close a cabinet door? You know? And he would go in, make a bowl of cereal, cabinet door hanging wide open. 
It was just irritating. And at first glance, this is innocent. True? And in most of our marriage counseling, it may very well be. Nine out of ten, ten times, it's just a cabinet door, kids. That's the other thing. I have to tell uh, counselors this a lot of times. Because once you get in this work, you start seeing abuse everywhere. And it may not be abuse, right? Because you're just so accustomed to it. You've heard the old adage, uh, if you hear hoof steps, think horse, not zebra. Right? Now, I work in a zebra farm. So <laughs> I do see a lot of zebras. But it could just be a cabinet door. But in this case, I want to give you more of the train. One night they had a conflict, and this conflict escalated to the point that, of their shouting. There didn't seem to be a resolution. He was very agitated, according to his own account, that she would not just give in. This would have ended hours ago if she would have just given in. Out of frustration, after the argument seemed to be over, he went into the kitchen and he opened every cabinet door about this much. <laughs> abusive, not abusive, eh. It's still in that irritating category. Maybe it's moved up to control, hasn't it? I'm not sure how to label it, but it's not cool. Something's wrong. Now, what if I told you weeks later it escalated even more and they had had a violent altercation in the garage where he had physically assaulted her? The following week, as things continued to escalate, he went into the kitchen, and guess what he did? Opened every cabinet door about this much. What was once an alienating and irritating and possibly an innocent behavior had become a signal to what? Don't mess with me. Now, please, if you're in marriage counseling and you've got a spouse who's irritated by cabinet doors, don't scream abuse, <laughs> right? But don't be surprised if you get more of the train later on, too. Remember, think horse, not zebra, but I just want to show you how quickly something innocent can become something abusive. How do you think she felt moving forward every time a cabinet door was left open? Did it affect her? Did it signal something? What if he just forgot to close the cabinet? Was she still experiencing something? Yeah. All violence is abusive, controlling, and irritating. There's a quote. I'll let you read that in your notes. It's a quote by my friend Leslie. Uh, she offers five patterns that I'll, I'll let you look at. I don't seem to have it in the PowerPoint, so let me try to illustrate it here out of the notes. Um, one of the exercises I like to do with guys, do you guys have an arrow in your notes? It doesn't seem to be in the PowerPoint, so let me go through the arrow with you. So you have that escalatory arrow. It should, uh, should kind of go up like this and kind of bend. Right? Okay, cool. So you've got that? Yes. So one of the exercises I like to do with guys is most of my guys will be quick to blame their partners. We've talked about this, right? So it's very easy. Minimization, denial, and blame are like some of the key aspects we're looking for or I'm listening for. If I call him out on something that's really abusive, such as after a violent episode you're using these cabinet doors to signal your wife, this is bad. And he goes, it's not that big a deal. Or the threatening text, right, when he says, it's not like I'm going to kill her. He's minimizing. Or if he blames, and he says, you know, I wouldn't have done this if I hadn't been drunk, or if I hadn't been high, or if she'd only done this. Or he denies it outright. Well, that's not what happened. I would never do that. Uh, one of the key tactics that a guy might use with me is he might say, you know, if she would just back down, I wouldn't have to do A, B, C, and D. We call that escalation. And many of the men I work with 
will say that their wife is the one who's actually escalating the conflict. And I would suggest that most of the time, while sometimes it's possible, most of the time, once we go through an exercise like this and we have a discussion, my guys begin to realize, wait, I'm the one who's escalating because he's typically the one who has power. So let me, let me try to illustrate. The bottom of the arrow, I'm going to encourage you to draw a little circle there. You're going to need room for four of those. We're going to go up that arrow with some circles. So I usually, do, I usually draw a waffle, um, one, because they're delicious and they're easier to see on a whiteboard. Uh, so a circle and little waffle lines. And we're going to call this exercise, you can do it with any tactic, but I'm going to use isolation, okay? So I can, you can do it with emotional abuse or, or anything, but I'm going to use isolation for us. So the very bottom circle is going to represent guilt tripping. Anybody know about guilt tripping? Anybody? Bueller? All right. This is very good. This is not necessarily uncommon to some of us. Let me give you an example. So a guy comes to his wife. He says, baby, I love you. And I love your parents, but you're spending way too much time with your mom. I want to spend time with you. I just feel like you're just giving your mom all this attention, and we really got to focus on our relationship. So, I mean, could you cut back some of the time you're spending with your mom? Can you just go over there one less day a week? All right? So he's using this guilt trip. I, I need you to be here. And she might respond, right? That's, that could be reasonable. Sure, honey. I'll spend time with you. And she might comply. Now, what may happen over time if he continues to persist in this guilt trip? What may she do? Continue to comply? She might begin to resist, right? And she might resist by saying, this is unreasonable. It started with me not going over there three days a week, and now I can't even call my mom on Thursdays? This is ridiculous. Or she might sneak out. She might choose a sinful resistance, right? Go around his back, sneak out and see his mom. So what we have here is he's started the process, and now she's met with equal resistance. And then he chooses to escalate. Now, I think at this point, there's this giant stop sign right in front of him. And it's saying, you know, Jim, Carl, whatever, stop and think. You don't have to go here. He blows through it, let's say. And he goes to the next tactic. So I draw the second waffle. And beside it, I put demands. I'm not getting what I want anymore. She's resisting me. All I did was ask her not to spend time with her mother. Now, of course, we found out through questioning that initially that was don't go over there on Wednesdays, and now it is don't call her on Thursdays, and eventually it's going to be don't see your mother at all, right? She's resisting, and so I upped the ante. You are forbidden to see your mother on Thursday. I will not stand for this anymore. I'm your husband. You're going to respect me and do what I want. How might she resist that? Might she comply? She could. But how might she resist? She might just go and not tell him. That would be a sinful form of resistance. She might deceive him. She might confront him, right? Which could actually end up escalating again. But she's still, see what I'm saying? She's not escalating it. She's meeting him on equal terms. Could be all kinds of forms of resistance. And I think at this point, Carl, Jim, whatever his name is, he's got a big stop sign in front of him at this point saying, stop, there's still hope. You don't have to go any further. Back up. Self-reflect. Think about this. Repent. At this point, we, have, we don't know if we've gotten to that. You see where we're in the fuzzy land? We don't see all the train. Is he abusive? Is he not abusive? I don't know. He's demanding. He's controlling. 
But do you see where we're going? Because that pride is so steeped. She resists, and then he ups the ante. If you, see where I'm going? Then I'll. It comes a threat. Now we've jumped into that abusive category, haven't we? I swear to you, if you don't fall in line, I can't promise what's going to happen to you. You're ruining our kids. That's a big one, right? Or what about the spiritual side of things, right? Don't you know what the Bible says about this? Leave and cleave, <laughs> right? Leave and cleave. I love that. I told you guys this yesterday. I love how uh, abusive people in particular who use the Bible tend to really like the passages that address other people, <laughs> right? It's like, I love other people's mail. Like, I open other people's mail, I tell them what they're supposed to do, and kind of forget that there's passages addressed to me, right? So how may she resist? If he makes threats, might she comply? She might. Because now, you see the dynamic has changed a little bit. Now instead of it being frustration, annoyance, anger, now we've got fear. Because he might come through on his threat. Well, she might resist by, again, ignoring, deceiving. So there's sinful resistance, right? Real quick before we go up the arrow, I, I keep saying there's sinful resistance because I have found this so often with biblical counselors. When a victim resists sinfully, it draws a great deal of attention to the victim. I'm not saying that she's not sinning. What I'm saying is it can distract us from him. Did I do the... Um, I did the exercise with you guys. John beats Mary yesterday. Some of you were there. Did we do that? Um, oh. The, the conscience of our culture is in such a way that I think it's, I think it's really, the culture likes to call it privilege, and I, I think it lacks some weight to it. Uh, but I do think there are blind spots to people who tend to be in positions of power. Okay? So if you're accustomed to getting things a certain way, or you're accustomed to being this homogenous group where everyone who looks like you gets what they want, you kind of become blind to the areas in where it's less than advantageous for a minority. And this happens with men and women quite a bit, where I don't really see the, the, the perpetrator. And if the victim acts crazy, throws a fit, or is sinful, our response, and I, I, I can see a lot of the women are like, amen. Um, our response as men in particular and culturally as a whole tends to be to focus our attention on the victim. It's like, look at her. Look what she's doing. When it may very well be resistance. Now, does sinful resistance need to be addressed? Yes, sin should be addressed. Not in the context of his violence. It should be addressed in the context of her use. But that doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to what he's doing. And I think that has happened a lot. Some of you agree. Some of you are a little confused. Okay, that's fine. So <laughs> she resists, and then he ups the ante. And this would be like a direct assault. So remember, this is isolation is the example we're using. So now he's like, he restrains her. He uh, takes her car keys. He disables her vehicle. He, I had one man one time who literally locked his partner in her house, in their house. He would leave for work, and he had a system on the outside of the door, but he'd lock her in. Did not see the problem with it. I mean, literally, he was like, look, she's not trustworthy. <laughs> and I'm like, look, if there's a fire, she's dead. Like, you, this is unacceptable behavior. And now what we've seen is what began as 
honey, I just want to see you more, you know, you need to spend more time with me, has now escalated to this point of physical force and violence. That's why I highlighted yesterday the importance of uh, the Sermon on the Mount and Romans 12, uh, and 1 Peter 3. I think those are just powerful passages about biblical resistance. Uh, the Bible is not short on oppression, and Christians are not simply to respond to oppression with, oh, well, right? We are allowed to resist, but we're not to resist the way the world resists. We don't fight fire with fire. The weapons we have are not weapons of the world. And so it is important in victim care to teach people who are suffering how to resist properly. But you can see, hopefully from that arrow, hopefully you can, can you see how quickly this can escalate? Now let me ask you, how quickly can we de-escalate once we've gone to the end of the arrow? How many of us are encountering these cases when they've already blown off the arrow and they formed three more arrows. Yeah, I can see it, right? So it is incredibly difficult to come back down once you've escalated that far. It's not, it's not, it's not impossible. Well, God, all things are possible, but I just want to let you know it's really hard. That's why I'm big on preventative work. We've got to do more conversations like this in the church to prevent some of this stuff from happening. Uh, how do we respond to controlling behavior? Well, I love this little proverb. Don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you'll become as foolish as they are. But be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, <laughs> or they'll become wise in their own. Don't you love that? Don't answer fools, but do answer fools. <laughs> to me, this is like, if, if I could, I would get this on a plaque in our classroom um, with the guys, because I think this is really indicative of the work that we do. The temptation is to answer the folly of domestic violence with the same type of foolishness. We talked about this yesterday in, the, in regards to the idea of bullying the bully. Remember that? There's this notion that the best way to address a, an abusive heart is punitive and punishment-driven and aggressive and overwhelming. But I really think all we're doing is reinforcing what he already believes, which is if I'm bigger, faster, stronger, and meaner, I can get what I want. And Proverbs is telling us, don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, uh, or you'll become as foolish as they are. Don't be foolish in how you deal with fools, <laughs> but be wise in how you deal with fools. Do deal with fools, right? Do answer foolish arguments, but do it in a winsome, wise way. Why? Because we don't want them to, to be right. We want them to be convicted, converted, changed. I said convicted, converted. <laughs> if those of you on the recording did not hear that, Siri uh, just said, sorry, I didn't hear you. Um, <laughs> So we're just trying to help Siri out. I will send you the notes later, Siri. We'll be good. <laughs> All right, how do we respond? Let's just get some practical things in place. I want to show you a simple process. I lay it out in the book, but this is just going to be a simple four-block process that I use with guys. Again, I know in an hour it makes it sound like that we're doing this in an afternoon and everything's nice and tidy and wrapped up with a bow. But uh, as I told the group in the last hour, when pastors call me and ask me, you know, how long should I expect to work this process? I tell them I would, I would set aside at least a year 
to really work the process. Not necessarily a year working with this individual guy, because you don't know how long it's going to take or how receptive a counselee is going to be. But if you're really interested in marriage restoration, I don't think I would think, I don't think you're going to have a tidy resolution in two and a half, three weeks. Just a thought. I think you should really be in for the long haul and a lot of heartache and heartburn. Um, but it's like uh, I was talking with Jim and Craig, and Jim said, a blade, one blade of grass on the moon is a miracle. I love that. One blade of grass on the moon is a miracle. So if, if this work only reaps one transformed heart, is it worth it? Like, yeah, yeah, it's difficult, but it's worth it. Uh, we want to make sure that whatever process we give, whether it's abuse or not, right? It, we don't know. We don't have all the train. We don't have to wait for it to be domestic violence before we address sin. But we want it to be motivated by the good news, do we not? And that's the temptation. We can be motivated by behavior change. We can be motivated by safety. We can be motivated by legal issues. We can really get lost in the weeds there, can't we? But we're biblical counselors. Remember, we're not law enforcement officers. We're not attorneys. So we need to be playing in our field. We should be motivated by the good news. And as I said yesterday, uh, did Jesus die for violent men? Sure he did. He died, for, he died on the cross that was supposed to hold Barabbas, so it's pretty clear, right? Did he die for controlling dudes, abusive people, irritating folk? Yeah, I hope so, because that's all of us, right? We're all irritating to a degree. You're like, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm not irritating at all. Ask your spouse later. She'll help you. He'll help you. Um, uh, we want our accountability to be expressed in Christ-like love. As I told you yesterday, this is one of the pretty passionate feedbacks I get from victim advocates sometimes is, Chris, you're far too nice. You're too funny. You're too lighthearted. You know, this is, this is, we're punishing these guys. And I'm like, no, the courts are punishing them. I'm educating them. The church is disciplining them. I'm calling them to repentance. I am not wielding the sword. I'm bearing the cross. I want to invite them. Um, now, certainly, does that mean that I'm, I'm firm? Sure. Does that mean that I'm hardcore sometimes? Sure. Do I pick at them at their expense? Yes. I love it, right? Yes, we have some fun. Uh, that doesn't mean it's any less serious. But we want to express Christ-like love. Because Jesus loves them, whether they're uh, controlling or irritating or violent. And then we want to do it in prayerful dependence. So, Holy Spirit-filled prayerful dependence. Uh, we are the little C counselor in the room, by the way. We know um, that God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Now, again, not all biblical counseling is on a sin hunt. But in this realm, domestic violence, coercive control, we are dealing a lot with sinful hearts, broken hearts, sinful people. And so, I will say that uh, the best remedy for a sinful heart is the Word of God. He needs to realize what he's doing. Um, so God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But, but, don't you love big buts in Scripture? I love it. I love it. I love this. Because like, that's like, ugh, the Word of God was here to tell us how sinful we were. Like, I already know I'm pretty bad. Like, I don't need you hounding me all the time, God's Word. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And we were dealing with some people that if they've gone up that pyramid, or if they've gone up that arrow, they're pretty sinful, Right? They've done some pretty wicked things. Is God's grace still abundantly available for the wicked? Amen. Yes. Right. So four of you are in. Yes. For the rest of you, 
we were pretty convinced that <laughs> it's available, right? So what I do, and, and this is very similar to what we worked with yesterday, but for those who are new, and this is one of the ways that I formulate it with guys, uh, I try to use this four-box system. Um, beginning in your notes there, you'll see first is acknowledge sinful behavior. As you heard me say yesterday, those of you who didn't have a chance to, to interact with us yesterday, I really get specific. So I told the group uh, yesterday that I like to use the whiteboard and I gather data. And as I'm gathering data on the behavior, I write it on the board. And I don't write, I got mad. When I hear, I got mad, I say, well, what happens when you get mad? I yell. What are some of the things that you yell when you get mad? I call her names. What are the specific names that you call your wife? See, I'm going lowest common denominator. And so as I told the group yesterday, I write the words on the board. You don't have to do this. This is how I operate. Uh, if, if they say to me, uh, I don't want to repeat it in church. I don't want to tell the pastor. Then I'm like, well, you're going to have to. And here's the deal. If I'm uncomfortable hearing it and you're uncomfortable saying it, then I've got to believe your, un- your wife is much more uncomfortable being called it. So I'm, I'm staying pretty firm. We'll stay, I'll stand there the whole hour until you tell me what you didn't say. Right, so you heard me say yesterday, if it's like the B word or the W word, I'll write that on the board and we'll stand there in discomfort, you know, because again, I don't like writing it. He doesn't like saying it. She certainly doesn't like being called it. Um, so what did you do? You'll see in your notes something might, like this. I might have, I checked her cell phone. Uh, I took her car keys. I left the cabinet doors open. There's one for you. I rearranged the furniture. Uh, this was specific. I had a gentleman who, um, we really couldn't clarify how far up the pyramid he had gone. This is one of those fuzzy land issues. Uh, but he was a stay-at-home dad. His wife was the breadwinner. He had a disability thing going. And he would clean the house three times a week, which like, what? That's a dream, <laughs> right? But he would rearrange the furniture every time he did it. Different furniture configuration two or three times a week. And we later found out that he was doing it in part to irritate his wife. He wanted her to be unsettled. Now, we couldn't say abuse or not abuse, but uh, at that point, we just had part of the train. But certainly, is that disrespectful? Is that consistent with First Peter 3, 7? No. We had some things to work with, didn't we? Okay? We run that through the filter of James 4. So I'm always asking follow-up questions. Once I get the behavior, as I told you yesterday, I generally list this, like this whole whiteboard is just full of behaviors. Ad nauseum to the point that he's like, if the guy asks me one more question, I can't even think of more things that I've done, right? Then I want to go on to some what-based questions, and I'll say, well, what did you want to see happen? What did you hope she would do? What did you want to avoid? How did this benefit you? I'm looking not why-based questions. Remember, for those of you who are new, I don't ask why-based questions because if I say, why did you check her cell phone? I was going to show that she was cheating. Or I wanted her to blah, blah, blah. It usually goes back to blame shifting. A what-based question tends to be more concrete. So I'm like, what did you hope to accomplish when you checked her cell phone? Well, to confirm she was cheating, to teach her a lesson, to annoy her, to keep her uneasy. I want to get to those motivational issues. Then I want to promote repentance. Now, again, this process doesn't happen in 10 minutes. This is happening over weeks and weeks and weeks. I want to promote repentance because it's horrible to sin, but wonderful to be forgiven. Amen? (laughs) All the sinners in the room said amen. (laughs) And that's when we get to Biblical Counseling 101. At some point, we're going to put off and put on. At some point, we're going to put off and put on. 
What needs to change? Well, it's got to change at the heart, doesn't it? What I believe about God, what I believe about myself, what I believe about others. So I've got to put off poor theology. Does, does an abusive guy or a controlling guy have poor theology? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I told you yesterday, and this is true, I know guys who have incredible head knowledge when it comes to theology, but practically it's not, there's no boots on it. There's no feet on the ground. I was telling some folks at the break, you know, the, the folks on the History Channel know more Bible than probably all of us combined, but that doesn't mean they know Jesus. Come on, you've watched a Bible documentary on the History Channel, haven't you? Oh, talk about gymnastics. Jesus didn't really walk on water. Jesus had stilts that reached to the bottom of the whatever. I just made that up, but it probably could get on the History Channel. What else needs to change? Well, the behavior needs to change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We run that through the Ephesians 4 filter. Now, for most of us, we begin this work at about 20, verse 25, 26. Um, and this is really good for abusive folks. We've talked about this before. When's a liar, not a liar? When's a thief, not a thief? Well, the same thing. When's an abuser, not an abuser? When's a controller, not a controller? After observable repentance, after time. So at a point, we can't just say because he says so. Right? The proof's in the pudding, and the proof of the pudding's in the eating. This takes time. We, we know change has occurred when change has occurred. And, and I wish we could just snap our fingers and say, you know what, he seems sincere. I'd like to just move forward with it. I know it's more comfortable for us, especially as pastors. Whew. You want to go back to the elder board and be like, well, you know what, he's violent, and they're separated. When are they getting back together? I don't know. <laughs> We've got to see repentance. How long is that going to take? Pastor Chris said it might take a year or more. What? Are you sure? We run it through that filter so that we can develop a list of put-ons. What needs to happen instead? Like what needs to happen in the future? That's, I told you yesterday, when I, when I do three-month or six-month coaching, counseling with guys, uh, we spend a great deal of time on information. I say there's three, there's three prongs to this, uh, information, transformation, reformation. Uh, I'm responsible for the f- first piece, and I can help with the, second, the third piece. Uh, I'm responsible for information. So I want to, like I said, uh, like I told you before, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can feed him crackers. I, I want to give him as much information as possible to make him as thirsty as possible, but I can't make him drink. Information. I want him to know what domestic violence is, what coercive control is, what his sinful condition is, what abuse is, what the impact of his actions are. I want him to know all of that. And then transformation. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to encourage him to be open to the Spirit. I want to encourage him to respond to the Spirit's prompting. I want to encourage him to repent. But that's a job between he and God. Agreed? And part of the frustration is, guys, we can give all the information in the world. We can't guarantee this will ever happen. We can gather all the data in the world. We can fill in the first um, three blocks or the first two blocks, but we can't guarantee the transformation is going to happen. But when it does, right, when it does, then we get to join him in the work of reformation, helping him put off and put on. How cool is that? How exciting is that? I'll tell you, if you see a guy who has gone the extent of, say, uh, he's gone up the arrow so far that he's been violent. And uh, he comes to a place of repentance. 
and then he asks you to help him learn how to be gentle. Because you've been teaching him that gentleness is important, but it's such a foreign concept to him that he says, you know what, can you help me learn what it's like to be gentle? Well, (laughs) that's good, isn't it? I was recently working with an individual. We've been working for six months. We spent probably five months on that, on the information piece. It was just hard. It was just hard soil, right? I mean, it was just continually pleading and pleading and pleading and pleading and pleading. And then there was that pivot point. Now, our counseling relationship ended because I have certain restrictions on time frames and stuff, and I passed him off to a team. And uh, you know what was cool is this team literally is like, we had no idea how to get to this point. But we feel a lot more comfortable how to disciple somebody after this point. <laughs> but getting him here was nearly impossible. And it was cool that we had this group of guys, four guys, that were like, all right, we know the put-ons. We know what to do. And uh, then to help them in that process, they're going to spend another six months working with him on uh, eventual repentance. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Now, again, I've told, told you this. I'll tell you again. I don't have the greatest batting average. I don't think any of us do. This is not All-Star Weekend. Um, this work has, if, especially if it's gone up that escalatory arrow, don't expect to be batting 1,000. Expect disappointment. Right? Uh, I'm not saying you go in without hope. You go in with hope. You guns loaded, double barrel hope machine. But understand that you're going to experience some disappointment. And you might lose some friends. And you might suffer some heartache. But isn't that really the call of the gospel? Is that we identify with the suffering? So I'm not saying put yourself in harm's way. I'm not saying make yourself a victim. I'm just saying be prepared to have some successes and rejoice in them. But don't rely on them. It's like when I was doing my supervision, Doc Smith was my supervisor. And I remember having a really good week. I mean, it was like home run after home run. And, you know, and I started to get the big head. And I was telling him all about it. And he was like, Moles, this is awesome. This is great, Moles. He called me Moles. Moles, this is great. Great job. So what are you going to do next week when it all falls apart? <laughs> I said, what? He said, oh, it's going to hit the fan next week. It's all going to fall apart. <laughs> And sure enough, to the counselee, he was a prophet, right? The next week, it all just blew up. You know, we were playing catch up and put piecing, piecing the puzzle back together. So uh, you guys are familiar with that. You've had that. But in this work, um, you're going to have that kind of in volume. So you just kind of got to be prepared to navigate some of it. You had a question? Well, I guess you just kind of answered it. I, I... I've limited experience in this, but I found I find that these marriages that are like 20 years yeah. plus, yeah. that these are church-going people, commitment of Christ. This is very tough for that man to be willing to submit to even begin a process of considering responsibility. Yeah. So I guess my initial question to you in the local church, not so much your ministry, right. the jail people, but do you see people coming to repentance? In that? Yeah, I'll tell you a couple things that I try to keep in mind. By the time an, an individual gets to me through the court system, um, 
and it's not that I don't go in with hope. We, we always go in with hope, and we've seen some incredible things. But having escalated that far, and some of the men that I work with having been in the system since they were teenagers, having been violent for 20, 30 years, some of them having learned more violence in jail, what have you, um, we look for small victories. So it's sometimes the victory is acknowledgement, and that's as far as we get. And so we rejoice in that. At least he recognizes it. But we might not see repentance. Um, the, the second thing I would say is with the guys that I can get early, especially individually, who are, come to me recognizing, right? So they, they fill out an application. They call me. They try to get a hold of me. They say, Chris, I'm abusive. I didn't know it. I read your book. I, le- I read Leslie Vernick's book or I read the Holcomb's book. And I, 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 this is me. I'm in trouble. My family's in trouble because of me. Um, The chances of success there, a lot higher. Uh, But yeah. Because I think in the local church, and I'm talking about people now who've been, you know, criminal charges, that silent stuff that goes on behind so many closed doors in the local church. But, you know, you being here this weekend, I tell you, I feel like, I'm like praising God, just knowing what you've been doing. I know this has been something that we haven't fully understood or brought to light. Right. And it so just dishonors Christ, right? You know, this, of course, this is Satan's attack with the Lord being our bridegroom and us, his bride, and right. so marriage would be the thing here, but. This has been so encouraging to me for people I know in my own personal life that just, this has been years going of okay. not knowing what to do. So. Thank you. Yeah. We'll keep working, too, because there's a lot more work to be done. I uh, to, to briefly offer another answer, another thing for you, I get asked the question a lot, do guys actually change? Do people change? Um, especially in this work, because really the culture, secularly, um, it's very much similar to what they do with um, addicts or alcoholics. It's like always once an abuser, always an abuser. There's not a lot of hope in the culture. I mean, even as somebody who works culturally as a batter interventionist, we're kind of the you know the stepchild of the group. We're kind of the oh, what's those guys? Uh, and, and the reality is, a lot of unbelievers and experts believe that we're futile in trying this. But here's my response. When people say, do men actually change? Do people change? I say, everybody changes. Everybody. All the time. Some of the men I work with become more obstinate, more arrogant, more ugly. (laughs) They change. Some of the guys I work with make just enough changes to not get in trouble. And I, I don't like it, but we can rejoice that people are safe we can be happy that they have made some changes in their life, but there's no transformation. And then some people, some experience the life-changing power of the gospel, and they're transformed. So for the sake of the few that fall into Category 3, we continue to do the work. And my prayer for the church, this is my prayer, so I'm going to close things out. Thankfully, when it comes to control, only God has absolute control. So my prayer is that men in our churches will live in light of this truth, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. He laid the earth's foundation on the sea and built built it on the ocean depths. So let's let God be in control and let's call men into uh, being servants. Cool? 
All right. God bless you guys. Thank you again. Have a great evening. Copyright 2017, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.